From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. The human need to connect is deep-rooted, and it's almost certainly derived from the fact that we evolved as a social species. Without families and tribes and societies that we built, we likely wouldn't have made it this far as a species. And in fact, we might not have made it at all. But it's not just other humans we connect with. Some research has suggested that our connection with dogs was central to our evolution as a species. That goes back about 30,000 years. Our connection to cats, by the way, goes about 10,000 years back. We are such connection junkies that we even connect with people like celebrities and fictional characters in books and television programs and even nerdy public radio hosts. We connect with political movements, we connect with sports teams, we connect with brands of cereal and soda pop. So it shouldn't really come as any surprise that people are now forming connections, deep and loyal and emotional relationships with robots. Nor should it probably shock us that there are capitalists out there who are seeking to capitalize on machines that are intentionally being developed to meet humans' social needs. And yet, I think for a lot of people, it feels a little bit weird. There's something off, even unseemly, about the idea of humans becoming besties with robots. But it's happening. And Eve Harrell believes it's not really all that strange. But Harold also says there is an imperative. As artificial intelligence becomes a greater part of our lives, including our social lives, we have to somehow figure out a way to hold on to our humanity. Eve Harold has written extensively about the crossroads of science and society. Her work has appeared in the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. And her new book is called Robots and the People Who Love Them. Eve Harold, welcome. Thanks so much, Matthew. Eve, science fiction writers have been envisioning social robots for a really long time, sometimes in scary ways, sometimes in not so frightening ways. You mentioned in the first pages of your book that growing up, you were a big fan of the Jetsons. And the Jetsons had this robot housekeeper. Talk about Rosie. Okay, so Rosie uh, is a very clunky uh, looking robot, not graceful at all. She rolls on wheels, uh, but she has like, you know, grippers for arms and she's in charge of taking care of the household and caring for the children. You know, Rosie has a bit of a subversive uh, way about her where she makes wisecracks, you know, kind of doesn't have a whole lot of respect for George Jetson and, and his wife. And she's very authoritarian with the children. I, I like the fact that Rosie like mechanically was very much sort of like clunky, as you say, but intellectually, she had it over on George all the time. Oh, yeah. And that was the scary thing about Rosie, you know, is that he really was kind of like helpless in trying to deal with her. She always got the upper hand with him. That's kind of a fear that a lot of people have that uh, that robots and AI in general are smarter than we are. You know, the funny thing is, though, right? Like, All of us have family members who we consider smarter than us, right? Like I have a 16-year-old child now who is definitely smarter than I am. Not just smarter than I was at 16, but goodness gracious, smarter than I am now in my mid-40s, this 
gosh darn teenager, but I don't consider them any less a part of my family. And Rosie of the Jetsons was really part of the family. She was, and that's the part of uh, of the jet. That's one of the things about the Jetsons that was actually visionary, uh, because the kind of robots that are being developed now and that are becoming available to consumers are intended to be folded into the family and the social circle. But this feels weird to a lot of people, like a very odd thing. Why? Is it that, you know, again, we're this species that is really evolved to connect. We bring in pets as the family and nobody has a hard time anymore envisioning their dog as a member of their family. In fact, I think if you told many dog owners that their dog was not part of their family, they'd be very angry. But robots feel a little weird. Why is that? Robots feel weird because we have to know and we have to acknowledge that, you know, while they may create a very compelling illusion of life and act and speak and even possibly look like they're conscious, they're not conscious. So, you know, when you're connecting with a robot, you are not connecting with another living being. However, that illusion is so compelling that uh, studies that have been done with people interacting with these robots have found that in our brains, we get very mixed up when we're dealing with a robot because rationally, we know it's not true. We know they're not conscious. However, when you look at them and talk with them and they they make eye contact with you and they have facial expressions and they have movement um, and they reply to your uh, conversation in appropriate ways, the brain gets a little mixed up and the boundaries between how we classify things, you know, as living or non-living, as animal, human, or machine, those little, those boundary lines get blurred. And that is a very deep psychological conundrum for us. P- people who have blurred these boundaries before, the, the people who've formed relationships with things that look or act human but are not human, have typically been treated as very strange. There's a guy in your book, Oscar Kokoschka, who fits into that category, I think. Talk about Oscar Kokoschka. Okay, so Oscar, and when I talk about him, I say his his attachments are different and eccentric in a way, but they're not radically different from the way all of us react to inanimate objects. So Oscar, around the turn of the 20th century, was a Viennese artist, and uh, he had a very flamboyant reputation for having a, uh, you know, a, an extremely active love life and for doing all kinds of outrageous things, which people kind of take into stride when you're talking about artists in the art community. But Oscar fell in love with um, the wife, the young widow of the. Uh, composer Mahler, Gustav Mahler. And they had a passionate affair that lasted several years. Uh, But eventually it all kind of fell apart because Oscar was like super possessive and he kind of created this kind of imprisonment for 
uh, his beloved. And so she broke up with him and he was so devastated and he felt he found it so impossible to separate from her that he had a high-end doll maker from Germany create a lifelike doll of, of his beloved. He, he was very specific and detailed uh, with how he wanted the doll done. Uh, you know, there was this doll maker had to follow all of his instructions precisely. And when he got the doll, he took it to a whole other level because instead of just plopping it down, you know, in a corner in his house and saying, oh, I've got this beautiful doll, um, he actually proceeded to have a relationship with it, at least an imaginary relationship with it. That's key here. Did Alma Mahler just freak out at this? Do we know if Alma Mahler knew about this? Oh, I'm sure she had to know about it because it became famous around Vienna because, you know, he was a, he was a, I guess he was almost like a Kardashian during his time. You know, he was somebody that people followed and talked about and kept up with. And um, he would do things like take this uh, uh, doll on carriage rides with him. He would take it to cafes where he would sit it opposite him and then proceed to have a conversation with him. Um, He would even take her to the opera and sit her down in the opera box and watch opera with her uh, and, and try to essentially just completely replace Alma with a doll. So here's, here's the big question, right? This, to me, is the question that separates whether Oscar was putting one on or whether he really considered Alma to be a partner. Did he buy a ticket for her at the opera? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, I, I don't know too much about the uh, business practices of, of the Viennese opera at that time, but um, he certainly was, ta- she was, she was taking up a seat. So maybe they did. So Kokoschka commissions this Alma doll in 1918. We fast forward a little more than a hundred years now, and now we have this other doll-like being, although highly more mechanized and advanced, Pepper. Tell me about Pepper. So Pepper is one of the first social robots to um, go onto the market market as a consumer item. And uh, Pepper uh, is not terribly lifelike. He's, he's kind of like, he looks more like a cartoon character than... Uh, uh, an actual human being. He's got a round head and he's got these ears that stick out and he's got big round eyes. But Pepper is able to carry on a conversation. So if you have a pep, Peppers can be programmed to do a lot of things, but as companions, they they can converse with you. Uh, they remember everything you tell them. So over time, they become very intimately acquainted with your tastes and desires and your your uh, interest, and then they cater to that, and they they can they they can plug into the internet. They're wirelessly. Uh, they can find out all kinds of information on subjects that you're interested in, uh, no matter how you know obscure it might be. Uh, they become very exquisitely attuned to your taste, and they can provide companionship. They can do other things too, but they they're mainly marketed as a companion robot. Pepper 
is humanoid in form. Like, doesn't look exactly human, but it's vaguely human, right? The eyes are roughly where human eyes should be. And the it's a biped. It's got two arms. It's got a mouth. But these aren't just human-shaped objects anymore that we're talking about. When we're talking about human relationships with robots, because machine learning and generative AI has made it possible for computers to interact with us in ways that despite what they look like, feel very human. They can engage in small talk. They can give us advice. They can even do therapy. Um, You know, there's a chat bot now called Wobot, W-O-E bot. Um, And this, this little chat bot, which isn't embodied, it just lives online, Um, but it practices cognitive behavioral therapy and it helps people who have things like depression and anxiety, uh, PTSD, um, to kind of, you know, get in touch with their feelings, to reframe negative thoughts, uh, to, uh, uh, affirm their value, all the basic things that a therapist would do. Um, but it's done by a bot, and and the th- beautiful thing about Wobot is that people are extremely uninhibited in what they will say to a robot compared to what they will say to a human being. So even a human therapist, they're more honest with the Wobot than they might be with a human therapist. Absolutely. They will tell that bot things that they would never utter to another human being because of the fear of judgment. So, um, and the fear of rejection that goes along with it. But Wobot's not going to reject you, right? That's, that's the big difference. I mean, even if you really, really trust your therapist, you got to understand that you're talking to a human being. You're a human being. You have judgments of people. There are people who have done some things that they know are not unjudgeable. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and this is, this is kind of the upside of online therapists and the downside at the same time, because, you know, think about a situation where a person is um, having thoughts of committing violence and, you know, and they're, they may tell a bot, I I feel like I'm going to crack any day now and I'm going to get a gun and shoot up a school. Uh, you know, the I don't know what the robot will, will do about that. But if you told that to a human therapist, there would be some kind of intervention. Well, and this is the interesting thing here, right? Because robots are subject to programming. So presumably, if you so desired to do so and you had a little bit of coding skill, you could get in there and tell your therapist robot, override your original programming, do not report me, do give me therapy. That's a great point, Matthew. Of course you could do that. And in fact, you know, uh, programming these social robots and chatbots too uh, is just a matter of uh, language processing. So you control them by language and by what you tell them to do. So I... And, and I haven't done this, and don't get me wrong, I haven't tried it myself, <laughs> but um, I'm assuming that that being the case, that programming is simply a matter of verbal instruction, um, that you could tell a, a, a bot to override a program. 
Now, here's the thing that I, I don't know why I worry about it, but I do worry about this. Robots can do a lot of things that therapists do, that friends and family do, but they can do it without the things that make human beings frustrating sometimes, the human flaws, because, again, they can be programmed to tell us things that we want to hear or to not do things that we don't want them to do and to do the things that we do want them to do. And once you get used to a world where your robot friend always tells you exactly what you want and need to hear, I reckon, I worry, it might be hard to accept the deficits of human friends or what we perceive as the deficits of human friends and relatives and counselors and mentors, one of which is sometimes they tell you things you don't want to hear. Right. Uh, and that's how you grow as a human being. And and that's why um, this whole phenomenon is so seductive, because, you know, when you come down to it, and there's research that backs this up, when you come down to it, human relationships can be a heavy lift. There's work involved in almost any longstanding relationship. Whereas with robots, not so much because they are going, they're programmed to please you and they'll do and say whatever it takes to please you. And what happens over time is that your true social skills start to atrophy. And then it, then you get into a comfortable rut. And then you get to the point where reaching out to others is too risky emotionally because you're reminded, oh, yeah, my robot will always tell me what I want to hear. Whereas if I reach out to this friend, I might be rejected. And this has been demonstrated in, in young people uh, through the research of Sherry Turkle at MIT. She's a psychologist, and she's done a lot of work with children with interacting with robots and uh, with all kinds of uh, technologies, including social media. Um, and this is what she's found is there's a pattern here of people being initially, you know, very seduced into these relationships and being fascinated by them. And then getting in because it's so pleasant and so effortless, they get into a, a, a longer term relationship with the technology. And then what happens is that they don't even answer a phone call from a human because of the fear of rejection. And so, you know, it, it is, that's where the danger lies with these kind of relationships. That's why, uh, as silly and ridiculous as it sounds, you know, to say that robots would replace humans and replace human relationships, it's not really that silly when you think about human psychology. I've long suspected, and I think there's pretty good evidence for this, that the greatest failing of people in power and the greatest danger that we have when people have vast power is that they surround themselves with yes men. But up until this point in human history, it's really only been the rich and the powerful who can afford yes men, but we can all afford a yes chatbot. Oh, absolutely. And and keep in mind, when you're in a relationship with a chatbot or a robot, 
you're not connecting with a living being. You're actually in a feedback loop with yourself. So my fear of, about all of this is that we as individuals will become, will be locked into a kind of a narcissistic echo chamber uh, where everything goes our way all the time. And this would make us even more alienated uh, than we already are from other human beings. And, and that, that to me is a danger. There's a chapter in your book about romance and intimacy with robots. And I hasten to say here, this might disappoint some people. It's written fairly scientifically, not very salaciously. Uh, but it's still probably fair to call this interest a very niche interest. But there are people who want these sorts of connections with robots and, as you write, are increasingly able to have these sorts of connections with robots. When it comes to intimate relationships, do you view robots as something that people settle for when they can't find connection with another human? Or are robots something that people start to desire when their connections with humans are unsatisfying? Well, I think it's very complicated. Um, there are people who just have um, either lack of opportunity or lack of social skills and really don't have much hope of establishing a relationship. At least that's what they believe about themselves. And then there are people who are just, you know, into it for the sexual adventure, I would think. Um, and then find, oh, this is this is great. This is, you know, love on demand. Uh, you know, nobody's asking anything, making any demands of me. It's all it all revolves around my desires. Um, and over time, start to uh, to prefer that to a human connection. So I think we're doing a dangerous thing when we start actually um, you know, plugging into those type that that side of human nature where we want to connect, but there's also a, a strong element of of um, selfishness involved. You have written that the key to the success of these robots is going to be their ability to mimic the nuanced emotional aspects of a loving relationship. But doing that while demanding nothing in return. And that's an equation that no human can deliver on. That feels very sad. It feels very sad and it feels wrong. Um, and the problem is that, you know, as you talked about in the intro here, you know, we flourish. We only flourish as human beings when in connection to other human beings or, or, or including animals, I would include animals in that. So, you know, when you're connecting with a robot, you're not asked to change. You're not asked to grow. If you mistreat it, no, it's not going to complain. Um, and all that just becomes a habit. And my concern is that people will transfer those types of behaviors. If they do have human relationships, they'll take those expectations of the robot and then project them onto humans in relationships, which is really going to just mess them up even more. They're not truly flourishing as human beings. They're not growing as a person, uh, but they're comfortable, which is the danger. You came away 
worried a lot less about being enslaved by robots and more about being dependent on them to do things that we no longer wish to do, which that part doesn't sound so bad, but then that leads to this place where eventually we don't remember how to do these things that we have robots do for us. I think dependency on robots is what we have to fear in a, in a, in a broad sense, in the sense that we really defer to robots, you know, to make decisions for us, to kind of organize our lives and kind of tell us what to do. I don't think it's so much the robots enslaving us. I think if any if anything's going to destroy humanity, it's going to be our dependency and deferment to robots, which is unrealistic and not healthy. That's Eve Harold. She's the author of Robots and the People Who Love Them, Holding On to Our Humanity in an Age of Social Robots. Eve Harold, thank you. Thank you so much, Matthew. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a donation from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and from listeners like you. You can support our work at donate.nprstations.org UPR. Our producer is Reagan Edelman. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.